This is an Alert USA Threat Journal resource supplemental podcast for Saturday, January 25th, 2020. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Hatfill. He's an American physician, virologist, and a former biodefense researcher for USAMRID, which is the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases located at Fort Detrick, Maryland. His medical fellowships include Oxford University, the National Institutes of Health, and the National Research Council, where he specialized in the Ebola, Marburg, and monkeypox viruses. Dr. Hatfill is also the lead author of a fascinating new book entitled Three Seconds Until Midnight, which looks at the history of pandemics and a poor state of readiness of the U.S. medical system for the next major pandemic event. Steve, thanks for joining the Threat Journal podcast. Very big pleasure for me. Thank you. So, the world is facing another emerging disease crisis with the Wuhan novel coronavirus. All this began on December 31st when the World Health Organization was alerted to several cases of pneumonia in Wuhan City in the Hubei province of China. One week later, Chinese authorities confirmed that this was a new entry in the coronavirus family. As of the time of this discussion on Wednesday evening, China alone is acknowledging 571 cases, with additional cases appearing in Japan, South Korea, Thailand, Taiwan, the U.S., Mexico, as well as suspected cases in several other countries. Steve, can you first tell us what is a coronavirus? It's an RNA virus, which means the blueprints that it uses to create new copies of itself are made out of a molecule called ribonucleic acid. And these viruses are very prone to mutation, Because every time they copy their blueprint to make another virus, they make at least one mistake. So when you're infected with an RNA virus, you don't just have that virus. You have a family, very, very slightly different. Um, This is a survival advantage for the RNA viruses. Uh, It allows them to try new combinations to defeat the defense of a host, and by that I mean a virus can't replicate on its own. It has to hijack the machinery of a normal cell. So you inhale this, and the cells that line your airway become infected. Um, It's sort of a lock and key mechanism. If you have certain molecules on the surface of the cells of your airway, then... uh, the virus has a key and that's what it fits in and that's how it enters the cell. It takes over the machinery, the normal cellular machinery, and all it does is make copies of itself to the detriment of the host cell, which uh, very often dies. So Steve, let me ask, many people initially infected in this outbreak had visited a live animal market in Wuhan. That suggests they caught the virus through contact with animals there. Any word yet on what the animal reservoir might be? No, and this can take a number of weeks to find out. Uh, The previous outbreak, really severe of a coronavirus, there's seven strains that uh, we're aware of, uh, including the Wuhan virus. The last outbreak was in 2003 of a coronavirus called SARS. Causes a disease called a a, a severe acute respiratory distress syndrome. And this was transmitted from the Chinese horseshoe bat, and it had an intermediate host called the civet cat. These these aren't cats, they're actually a mongoose like animal. Uh, When they're cleaned up, they're actually kind of cute, 
but they're considered a delicacy over there. And uh, people buy these in the market and eat them. The problem with these live markets, the, the Chinese, like their Asians as a whole, like their, their food very, very fresh. So if you're over there and you're staying with a family, uh, they'll go to the market in the morning and they'll pick out the frogs and the chickens and whatever they want. And they'll be killed at the live market and brought back and prepared and you'll eat them the same day. You can't get much fresher than that. Unfortunately, with all these different species crammed together in cages and close confines, they start trading viruses. It's called viral trafficking. And usually, if a virus has the capacity, and I'm speaking in general, an RNA virus, to infect two different species of mammal then humans are at risk for contracting an infection. So there's two ways that these emerging diseases can affect man. One is by actually, there's just so much virus in the environment that a human is in that it's, it, it forces its way into the body. It spills over. And the other event is a little more complicated. We don't really see it with the coronaviruses, but it's... Uh, uh, genetic information is, is traded for, for this family. This is more for influenza. But because you have all these very closely, closely related viruses with just minor changes, when it enters the human body, there's a selection process. Usually, the uh, human defenses are enough to, to rid the infection. Uh, but the virus or the quasi-species, we call them, somewhere in there, there may be a virus that's a little more resistant to the human uh, immune system. Or it may have the ability, because of a mutation, to replicate faster and in higher numbers within a certain period of time. Or it may be a little more environmentally stable than uh, the rest of the, the, the viruses around it. Whatever it is, the more virus you have in an environment, an RNA virus, uh, the more chance you have of being infected. And as these things replicate, it's, it's random. It's like rolling the dice to pick a favorable mutation that it will allow it to replicate uh, in the humans. So most spillover events don't transmit very well from human to human. Uh, one of the recent ones is the H5N1 virus. It causes a very lethal pulmonary disease in the people that pick it up initially, but it's very poorly transmitted to person to person at this stage. Now, with the upcoming Chinese New Year, the celebration of which involves the largest annual migration of humans on the planet, with hundreds of millions of people throughout Southeast Asia and globally all packing into every form of surface and air transportation in order to join family and friends for the holidays, most of whom also, as you said, heading out to the wet markets and stores for the freshest foods and meats, then gathering in homes and different venues for parties and other festivities. What are your thoughts about the situation with the new virus getting way out of hand as a result of this mass movement and gathering of people? It's very, very worrying, especially the fact that it's winter. Vir RNA viruses, for the most part, they like the cold. And they don't like moisture in the air. So very cold weather, 
Uh, it's dehumidified air, very, very cold temperatures. Somebody coughs on a subway or a bus, the virus tends to stay around a little bit longer than if it was hot and, uh, and rainy. So this is a, uh, a generally very, very bad scenario here. And we're not sure what will happen. So the Department of Homeland Security and CDC have implemented screening procedures at five major airports across the U.S. through which most travelers from China enter the country, those being LAX, San Francisco, JFK, Chicago, and Atlanta. What is the method we're using to screen the passengers, and is it effective? Well, the first thing is a thermal camera, an infrared camera. Uh, these are very accurate, and... You walk in front of it, and uh, it takes your temperature based on the amount of infrared radiation that you're releasing. Uh, extremely accurate. And you can screen large numbers of people at the same time. And then there's an interview, and uh, you'll, you'll be asked, were you ever around any live animals and this type of thing, ever in the markets, and uh, are you, how are you feeling? And these are general type of questions. That's about all you can do for such volume of traffic of human beings. Now, there's some tests that are experimental that are out there, which work like a breathalyzer, and you blow into it, and it can tell you if you have a viral infection in your upper airways. But these aren't available yet. Steve, on any list of the world's experts in emerging infectious diseases, your name would certainly be somewhere on that list. As such, what signs are you looking for in the data that's being reported that this could become a major public health emergency? For instance, in a number of our recent conversations, you've repeatedly made mention to the outbreak's row number. Can you explain what that is? The, the RO number is a useful way to compare the infectivity of different viruses. Uh, if the RO number is above two, uh, then this virus can be propagated. So the 1918 influenza had a row number of about three. Ebola has one of about three. One of the most infectious pathogens we know is measles, and it has a row number of about six. And, um, I mean, you can catch measles at the drop of the hat if you're not immunized. So this is sort of the spectrum here. It's worrying, and it's worrying because the more people that are infected, the more mistakes the virus is making in the environment. And the load of the virus, the total amount of the virus in the environment is greater. So it's like pulling the handle of a slot machine. If you pull the handle enough times, eventually you're going to hit a jackpot. And the more virus you have out there replicating and making errors in its, in its copies, the greater the chance you have that it's going to hit a winning number and find a survival advantage over the rest of the viruses around it that makes it the dominant species. So you have one, let's say, the mutation makes it a little more stable in the atmosphere when it's coughed or sneezed. Well, that becomes the predominant strain. More people get infected. More virus is out there making errors as it reproduces. And now 
you have a mutation that lets it replicate more efficiently in the human. Well, this is not good. You have a virus that has now enhanced stability in the air or on surfaces, and now you have one that's really the infected person is pumping out a lot of virus into the environment. What we're most concerned about now is, is a patient infectious before they start running a, a temperature, a fever? The influenza viruses are really notorious because you're, the patient's secreting a large amount of virus into the environment and they're infectious before they show any symptoms at all, 24 hours uh, later, usually. So we don't know if this coronavirus is doing this. If it is, then it, it gradually starts to become a worse and worse scenario. So this is why it's important to identify these cases early and then to run down, trace down all the contacts these people have had and then interview them and watch them for signs of developing a disease and to keep them isolated until it's past an incubation period and we're sure they're not going to get it. Or if we have rapid diagnostics, which we now have for this virus, we can test them for infection. Speaking of isolation, the government of China has begun locking down entire cities and halting all ground and air transportation, and no one's being allowed to leave. Do you think that this is going to have a significant impact? China may control it in Wuhan. By the way, no quarantine's ever 100% infective. And if you start getting a lot of cases in Wuhan, people are going to find a way out. It's just the way it works. They'll walk out if they have to, and they're scared enough. The, uh, it's interesting that it hasn't, to my knowledge, since the Middle Ages that we've ever quarantined a city. I think China's the only place that could have done that. I guess the next question is, how prepared is the U.S. health system to handle a widespread outbreak of this virus here? Well, we're not prepared at all. This effectively cuts right to the heart of your book. I spent a number of years studying uh, our pandemic planning in the United States. And what I was finding, I couldn't believe. Uh, this, this went down and I got a hold of every government accountability uh, GAO report that I could get my hands on on this. And uh, they confirmed all my worst fears and other scientists. Right now, if we had something like a 1918 influenza pandemic, uh, about 123 to 125 million people aren't going to get anything, assuming they're working, they're supposedly working on a vaccine now. But it takes months to produce these things under current technology. Uh, the president is actually quite forward thinking. He signed into, uh, I think it was an executive order for a five-year plan to improve our vaccine production capability. Uh, most of our vaccines, virtually all of them, are made overseas. There's very almost nothing that's made in the country. And, uh, of course, in a pandemic, how do you know that those overseas plants are going to send it to America? We, we already had a problem with England one year uh, with an outbreak of flu. So uh, it's not that as much as it is the federal government has done a very good job in creating a national strategic stockpile of medical items that would be necessary in a severe pandemic. They've also made step-by-step -step guides for local authorities who will be required to handle the hardest jobs in the pandemic. 
That is, find extra medical volunteers, make sure that they're trained and know how to use personal protective equipment, uh, stop the hospitals from overflowing by establishing what are called alternate care sites, such as uh, closing a high school and, and using that building as an alternate treatment center for victims of the infection. And there's just a whole range of things that have to happen. Um, unfortunately, our local authorities, by and large, are a failure at this. The federal government provides money, but uh, nothing ever seems to happen. And this is from their own surveys that they do from time to time. All the federal government really have said they're responsible for is stimulating new vaccine development, creating the strategic national stockpile, uh, promoting vaccine manufacturing. Now, we, as you can see now, we can't make the vaccine till we have the virus, you know, and we know what's causing the problem. So we've got the virus, but it's a slow process. Uh, and they will get items from the national stockpile to where they're supposed to go. They will deliver it to one point in the state. It's the state's job to distribute it to all the local authorities both in the large uh, metropolitan areas and to the towns. And um, it's going to be like a, a very large family at supper time. So if you're the smallest, you better have a big reach because there's not much left when the, when the big guys have eaten it. So the rest of the thing is up to the local authorities, and uh, they're not prepared. They don't have emergency plans. Uh, they haven't made a, operating agreements. The government has brought in this thing called, it, it's a cooperative thing. So if one area is really badly hit, the surrounding areas will come to their aid. But in a rapidly moving severe pandemic, this may not be viable because the surrounding areas may be in the same difficulty as, as the community asking for the help. And then again, we have these areas uh, along the Texas border, they're called colonias. I like to call them in the inner city disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged areas, and they require special attention. Uh, these are the communities that are going to be hit the hardest, both with hospitalizations as well as mortality. They're the ones that have the most coexisting, pre-existing disease, respiratory disease from smoking or diabetes or other disorders, and um, they're the ones that are going to give it to everybody else. The health literacy is very low. All you're going to have is advice for the federal government. If you're sick, don't go to work. Frequently wash your hands. Stay away from others. How are you going to do this if you live paycheck to paycheck and you have to take mass transit into a high-density metropolitan area to get to work? So you can see the problems. These areas require special attention and pre-planning, and it's just not been done. Their parent cities are incapable. If you look at Chicago, it's my understanding Chicago is essentially bankrupt. Uh, they don't have any money for pandemic preparedness. So this is the problem. If a local area can handle the pandemic, which essentially it's nothing more than a local epidemic, but if it can handle that itself, 
then it's free to work on all the other problems that may be associated with a severe disease pandemic. You know, we're living in a very complex, infrastructure-dependent society. This allows us to live in such large numbers. In fact, no other species of large mammal, I'm saying large mammal, uh, has ever lived under the population densities that we have now. So essentially, we're all living in a great global biological experiment. We don't know how this will turn out. Very interesting. Steve, I'm wondering if there's any recommendations you can make to healthcare workers here in America, given what's happening right now overseas with the emergence of this new virus. I would add, uh, we've found over the last number of years with the influenza virus that the eye is a target for infection. So if somebody coughs and they release a small number of one to five micron droplets. Uh, most of it are large droplets that will fall out of the air within three to six feet. But there's this residual aerosol droplets that are left that can stay suspended for hours. These things, if they come in contact with the eye, the surface tension draws them in. And within 20 minutes, you know, you, your tears drain through a nasolacrimal duct into your nose, your nasopharynx. Uh, within 20 minutes, anything that's contracted through your eye is going to be with the target cells that the virus likes in your upper airway. So you have to add eye protection. Um, frequent washing of the hands. Every hospital has a small number of isolation rooms with negative pressure. Well, that's not going to be suitable for large, large numbers of patients. So you kind of want these patients to be nursed off-site. And this is where the pre-planning comes in. For the healthcare workers, constant washing of the hands, wearing of gloves, aprons, high-efficiency particulate air respirator. They call it a respirator now. It's a surgical mask. It's an N95. It can 90, remove 95% of uh, particles in the you know, 1 to 5 micron size range. These are the funny-looking duckbill masks, many of them, that you see in the, uh, in the African Ebola treatment centers. And, um, and eye protection. And then careful disposal of everything you've been wearing while you're working. That has to be considered infectious as well. And there's a certain way you have to take it off or decontaminate the outside of it before you remove it. And then it has to be carefully disposed as a biohazard. Look, nobody knows how the bread gets into the corner supermarket, corner grocery store. It just somehow magically appears. It started out as wheat in the field, and somehow it gets to the uh, grocery store. Well, that is done through a very complicated process, very complex. And that process from farm to table is dependent on another complex process, called gasoline and diesel fuel. How does the gasoline and diesel fuel get from under the ground to the corner gas station? Again, it's through a very complicated uh, logistical process. And I can go on and on and on with power generation, communications, all this type of thing. They're all dependent on each other. If you don't have any gas, you don't have any delivery trucks, you're not getting food. All of this is dependent on a healthy workforce in sufficient numbers. If you start having a large number of sick people, 
and a lot of worker absenteeism, things are going to start uh, breaking down. In our book, we try to, we use Philadelphia in 1918, and there's some excellent books on this written by uh, single authors that spent years of research. We acknowledge them in, in our book, and in, uh, I, I would strongly urge you to read these. But it, it's a big problem. Mortuary. I phoned my hometown of 18,000 people in Illinois, and I took a survey of how many freezers we had for bodies. And uh, counting the funeral home, we had three. Well, projected out of 18,000 people, uh, let's give it 50 deaths in my hometown from a 1918 type thing. How are you going to handle that? You know, you're going to have to use freezer trucks and this type of thing. You're going to have to have pre-existing plans on what you're going to do when everything starts to become overwhelmed. For a moderate 1918 influenza type scenario, we're looking at requirement for a 200% increase in the number of hospital beds and a 400% increase in intensive care beds. And uh, even with the stockpile, we don't have enough ventilators to, you know, put people on uh, life support. So your best chance is to minimize this and stop it before it reaches such a level that you can no longer do case contact tracing. The prison, we've known how to deal with epidemics for, for years. You isolate the people that are infected if you have no treatment and no vaccine and it has a mortality. You isolate them so they can't infect anyone else. You go back and you trace all the contacts, they, the people they've been in contact with, and you isolate those people or test them. If you have a test to see if they're infected, you keep them isolated until you do that. And uh, you get on top of it. This is very, very labor-intensive. The one case contact in Seattle, uh, I can guarantee you now they're having to look at several hundred people. That requires a lot of healthcare workers. And our nation is 50,000 healthcare workers short. Nobody's going into the field. So we don't have the resources to handle this. Uh, we can't do large numbers of case contact tracings. So that's going to make isolation a bit difficult. Uh, we don't have our, our vacant hospital beds are minimal in this country. Uh, the supplies for those hospitals are all just in time inventories. We have no plans of, of surge outside of the uh, if the hospital hasn't got emergency supplies. Uh, then you're going to have to depend on the strategic national stockpile and wait in line after the big metropolitan areas. Everything is going to try to maintain their continuity of government, both the federal, the state, and the local authorities. And what's left over from that will end up for general consumption. So you can see the problems that we're facing. Steve, do you have any recommendations for the general public if this really starts to spread here in the U.S.? Absolutely. One of the things, though, they could do is close all schools and ban all public areas of gathering. So movie theaters, the taverns, um, this type of thing. Uh, these are all measures that were tried in 1918. They're called non-pharmaceutical interventions. It's what you do 
when you have an increasing number of patients and there's no drugs and no vaccine. So there's individual precautions you can take, which I've described, constantly washing your hands, avoiding contact. A lot of these things aren't practical to do. You have to go out and work. You have to go get groceries. If you're riding a, a, a morning rush hour subway, how are you going to avoid other people? If you're sick, they should be wearing a mask. You can wear a mask. It'll help a little bit. But it's unless it's a HEPA-filtered mask, you'll still inhale some of the particles. It has to have a good seal around your nose and mouth. A neat little gap in the air will come in that way. Uh, you're going to wear eye protection. We don't have a pandemic respirator that uh, even an elderly person can quickly put on and put off and be comfortable in. Uh, this has never been developed. Um, companies can do things. They can start staggering their work hours if they can, reducing their staff. In some areas, if you can telecommute, that should be encouraged. Not all businesses can do that. Uh, and then you still have the problem with people that are in constant exposure to the public. The person that's bagging your groceries, the taxi cab driver, you know, the list goes on and on and on. These people are at very, very high risk uh, if this thing starts to get out of hand. The SARS thing, even though um, the Chinese delayed notifying the World Health Organization, uh, it was still managed. Well, coronaviruses may differ in their ability to transmit to humans and their infectivity. Uh, we see differences in the Ebola virus. It's not just the Ebola virus. There's different strains uh, and different quasi-species. So we can only hope that this will be able to do the case contact tracing and keep it contained. But when you start having to quarantine a city of 11 million people, you can come in, but nobody's going out. We haven't seen this before. It makes you wonder if, if the case numbers we're getting out of China are correct. Now you combine that with the uh, Chinese New Year. And uh, you have all the prerequisites for a worst-case scenario. An RNA virus that is constantly mutating. Large numbers of people packed together from all diverse areas coming together in families from all over the world, and then everybody going back home. My guess is there'll be more cases coming back than we're leaving. We'll just have to see how this one plays out. You know, this is a great time to make mention of the quote that is at the beginning of your book. It says, The single biggest threat to man's continued dominance on the planet is the virus. And that's by Dr. Joshua Lederberg, the 1958 winner of the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. A brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant man. And he's absolutely correct. He only died a few years ago. And he was active right until the end. And this was his constant warning on what we call emerging infectious diseases, or EID. And it's really caused by man's enroachment. Uh, into formerly wild areas. A lot of these viruses used to be tucked away deep inside some jungle. Well, the jungles cut down the palm oil plantations appear, and the number of species are diminished, 
So viruses that once, you know, most viruses only like one species. They're kind of particular. But when you cut the diversity down, well, these viruses learn to adapt to new host animals. And when they learn to do that, they pick up a predilection for humans. These threatened biodiversity areas are numerous throughout the world. And we're seeing this play out. Dr. Hatfield, you've been extremely generous with your time and the sharing of your expertise on this topic. And we thank you for joining us today on the Alert USA Threat Journal podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Stephen. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about the Alert USA Homeland Security Threat and Incident Notification Service for mobile devices, visit alertsusa.com. That's alertsusa.com. You can also sign up for our free weekly email newsletter by visiting threatjournal.com.